Good morning from me. My name's uh, Peter. I'm uh, one of the one of the pastors here. Good to have you at church. Anyone out there happy to be at church today? Yeah. Yeah, right. That's good. That's good. Um, oh, this is unplanned. Um, I just I want to say something. If you're going through a um, a difficult time at the moment, um, I, I just want to invite you to welcome to welcome God. God is a God who makes streams flow in the desert. That's what He does. That's His uh, that's His specialty. And so, if you can, um, if it's been dry and crusty for you for a while. Um, you remember those uh, pictures that you see on the news sometimes when the, um, the floods come and the water goes down the Murray River and you see those images of uh, dry, crusty creek beds that have been dry and crusty for a long time. And um, it's not like a tsunami going down there. It's more a slow, unstoppable creep of the water that, that soaks up and filters into all of the dry and crusty, crusty uh, riverbed. And um, God, God wants to do that with all of us. If you've been through a hard, difficult time, you just need to know that he is the one that brings streams and makes streams flow in the middle of the desert. And I'll just invite you today to welcome him, to say that his presence and his life is welcome for you. So I want to... Um, I was going to pray for you. I was going to pray in a minute, but I'll pray now. And um, especially for you, for people who it's a bit dry and crusty and Jesus and I haven't been that close for a while. It's not because you haven't been trying, it's just been dry and crusty. Um, And it's been a bit of wilderness. So I'll just pray for you. Jesus, wherever you go, wherever you walk, Wherever your presence goes, life happens. And we do live outside the garden. The Garden of Eden was a a, a rich, flourishing place where you walked. And we live outside it and sometimes it's... um, Sometimes it's dry, sometimes it's a wilderness, sometimes it's a desert. But you are the God who brings life and flourishing and goodness to pass in deserts. And so I pray for anyone today, God, that um, that knows what that's like, that knows what it's like to walk down a dry, crusty, barren riverbed and kick the dust, um, that you want to bring good things and that you will and you are the one that brings life and nourishment and flourishing in the middle of difficult places. Amen. Well, superlatives abound in our culture. Um, They're not quite as prominent as they used to be, but uh, a superlative is a word that, um, which expresses how something we experience or something that happens is like the utmost greatness. Um, It's, it's, uh, it's, they are words that we use to describe the, uh, the utmost degree of something. Um, and it derives from the Latin, which means to make something high. So let me give you some superlatives. Awesome, great, cracking, uh, 
divine, fantastic. It was gangbusters, marvellous, par excellence, prime, sensational. It was outstanding. Um, you could add to the list, I'm sure. You've probably got your own favourites. But there's a problem with superlatives. I remember reading a theologian a number of years ago and he talked about this very problem with using superlatives so much is you end up in this situation where what words would you use to describe God? If an ice cream is awesome or a car park was great, like you just, that was a great park, like you just got it right in between the lines, right? It's like you got the steel rule out and it's exactly the same on each side. Or the meal was divine. Like what words are you going to have left to talk about God? It's like you've got these words at the top, these superlatives that really ought to be describing something grand and we take them and we use them to describe other things. I'm not saying that's even necessarily a problem. The problem is it's like what have we got left? How do you you talk about God? And this, in some ways, is the perennial problem for the preacher. The preacher gets up on Sunday mornings and it's like, put the divine God into 25 words or less. Isn't it? Just describe him for us. Describe him for us so that we would be, we'd get a glimpse of his glory. Just, can you do that for us, Peter? And and maybe even last night, you watched a movie, you watched a, a Hollywood superhero movie and there was explosions and there were amazing things. It was a visual feast. And you come to church on Sunday morning and I have to stand up here and Jaden has to stand up here and tell you how great God is in such a way that it captures your heart more than the movie you watched last night. Tough task, right? But it's not as tough as what you might think, right? Because I've got someone who works with me. Or more correctly, I work with someone else. And that's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit at work in your hearts. You know, we, we are up against it. I mean, Paul in his prayer in Ephesians 3 prays for the Ephesians and he says, he prays that they might know the love of God, which, does anyone know the rest of that? Surpasses knowledge. <laughs> yeah, excellent. That's great. Let me change tack just for a minute uh, to something related to this. What do you think is the most amazing miracle in the Bible? The most incredible one. Which one would you pick? There's plenty there, right? Plenty there. You might pick the Red Sea. That's pretty impressive. Like over a million people walking through on dry ground when they're about to get taken out by the Egyptians. Maybe you'd pick one of the stories of Jesus healing a blind man. You'd go, Lazarus, 100%. Dead in the tomb and Jesus comes along and raises him to life. Today, we're going to look at one verse today. Uh, One verse... Uh, And I think it contains arguably the most amazing miracle that has ever happened in the universe. And the scary bit about this is because we're so accustomed to grand things, perhaps superlatives, because we're so accustomed to Hollywood, the great fear today is that it would be ho-hum. Yeah, I know that. Really? Like that's... Is, is that not the curse of people who've been in the church a long time? I say, yeah, I know that. And as it says in the scriptures, 
uh, I would say to you, if you go, yeah, I know that, I would say, well, you probably don't know it the way that you need to know it. You probably don't know it the way you need to know it. We get used to it, don't we? Um, so as, as we read this one verse today, and as we consider things today, I'm, I'm going to slow us down a little <laughs> so that we can lay hold of what actually is really there. So if you can grab your Bibles uh, and go to John chapter 1 and verse 14 we're going to read today. Probably, um, I, I would suggest arguably, maybe the set, it's probably in the top five most well-known verses in the Bible and I reckon it comes pretty close behind John 3.16. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Here's where we're going to go today. We're going to start here. Have a look at verse 14 again. Keep your eyes fixed on it. Uh, God came low. The word Jesus became flesh. The word became flesh. <laughs> Bam, there it is. That, that is the miracle that I think just about surpasses every other one, isn't it? The God who created everything, the God who threw, who everything holds together in takes on human flesh. Think about the frailty, the humility, the condescension, <laughs> the stooping low that God would do such a thing. It's crazy. I mean, we just landed a rover on Mars, right? And I want to show you the clip of the landing of this rover on Mars because we are really impressive, right? Humanity is really impressive. Like you, I watch this and I go... That, that's impressive. We landed something on Mars. And I got to look at some of the photos this week of Mars in high definition. That's pretty cool. Anyway, here we go. It goes for about a minute. pretty amazing isn't it like I look at that and I looked at that this week and I just thought that is incredible we're actually pretty cool like humanity right like we can do some really cool things and there's a side of it where you go yeah like yeah Jesus the word well he wouldn't be doing too badly to come and as a human being would he like we can do some cool stuff 
Um, and then I, I thought about it some more. And I, I, I especially thought about it in the context of the control room at the end and everyone cheering. And I thought, you know, while they're cheering, there are humans shooting each other. We, we can land on Mars, but we can't get on with our next door neighbours. And, and I don't want to be negative about it, right? But there's a part of me that just thought, man, if, if Mars is uninhabited, let's not go there, <laughs> right? Because we're probably going to wreck it, aren't we? I mean, we could bring a whole bunch of good stuff, but we're going to bring a whole bunch of mess at the same time. Isn't this the story of humanity? There's the residual image of God in us, and we do some amazing things, but we, but we can be hideous can't we we can be hideous and then I, I i think about this thing and i just go what what did we actually just do um we landed a remote control on another planet that's it now that's pretty impressive for us but that's it like some of you are going isn't that like don't, don't you buy those at the toy store? Well, not, not that one. <laughs> you know, we do things that are amazing, but really they're, they're not that great, really, uh, in the grand scheme of things. Um, it's, in, it's into this world that <laughs> Jesus comes. He becomes a human. I have this verse that I think about regularly when I go on a plane, and that hasn't been for a long time, but for a while there I was in, in planes a bit. And uh, there's this verse that comes to my mind uh, really regularly, and it's this one. Uh, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I mean, do you know how many thousands and millions of planets are out there? And we're on this one tiny one and we just landed a toy on Mars and God has a heart for you. You you see how incredible that is? And and not only does he have a heart for you, he has a heart for a planet that is in rebellion against him. Now, let me ask you this question. If you were God... And you'd created this tiny planet and there's thousands and thousands and millions of other planets in the universe. And the people that you created on this planet went into all-out warfare against you. It was like a a, a rebel stronghold. Would you parachute in? Would you? (laughs) I don't think I would. Not without a few cosmic weapons and a cosmic flak vest. Right? I'm going to come in and walk around in human flesh. I'm not doing that. But this isn't Jesus. What does he do? Well, the Word who created everything, who holds everything together, didn't just become a human. Before he was an outside human, he was an inside embryo. We don't get him. <laughs> we, we do not get him. Even if you think you get him, you probably don't get him the way that you need to get him. (laughs) 
If, if you don't love Jesus today, we're just so glad that you come to church. But we want you to know that Jesus loves you so much that he would go from being the divine God in a dust-free, evil-free environment and he would take on human flesh to be with you. And it's not just that, the, um, that God becomes flesh. <laughs> you know, if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 14, you know what you see, you see there? It's, it's the one and only Son. Now, you might read that and you go, ah, numerically, like there's one. But you know, this is, uh, you know, the, the Greek that this is written in, uh, uh, kind of behind the English translation, this is what it actually means. You know what it means? It's like one of a kind. It is one, but it's not just one, it's one of a kind. There is no one else like Jesus. And there's one of a kind, none like him, son of God, comes in the flesh. Amazing. Why is it important? Well, I just want to give you, we could spend ages on this, right? But I just want to give you three uh, quick reasons why Jesus coming and taking on flesh is important for you. Here's the first one. Uh, Jesus's humanity makes him a good substitute. Here's how it works. Here's how life works, right? And if, if you're a parent, you've said this, it, everyone's been a child, some of you may still be children, you've probably heard your parents say it. Here's, here's the line, who made this mess? It could be a worker in a, in a workplace. Who made this mess? What's the implication when someone finds a mess, when they say, who made this mess? What's the implication? They've got to clean it up. Who should clean it up? person who made the mess. That's how it works, right? You make a mess, you're supposed to clean it up. And this is how it works with humanity. We made the mess, we're supposed to clean it up. Now here's the problem. We are like a kid with muddy hands who's got dirt on a white t-shirt trying to clean ourselves. It, it just gets dirtier. It just gets dirtier. You see, we there's an action that needs to happen from humanity, but it's an action that we can't do. And so Jesus comes and he takes on human flesh and he performs this action as a perfect substitute for us and fixes up the mess between us and God. He doesn't stop being God, but he takes on human flesh and in his humanity, he lives out a substitutionary life to fix things up, to, to, to clean up the mess that we've created with God. Listen to this. This is Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Listen to this. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. A high priest comes in between God and people. Jesus is the perfect high priest. Why? Because he was made like us in every respect. He goes to the cross and he dies as a substitute for us. Jesus' humanity makes us a really good, makes him a really good substitute for us. Here's the second one. 
Jesus' humanity means he gets you. I um, remember years ago, um, at different times, I like to, I know a little bit about computers, enough probably to get myself into trouble. And uh, I remember years ago trying to fix a computer problem. And, you know, I had this thought. I just went, I'm not going to pray because I, I don't, know, don't know whether God does computers. All right? Does he, does he do computers or not? Well, he does, right? But have, have you ever had something like that? you ever been in a situation where you don't talk to God because you go, I don't really think he does this. I don't really think he gets it. Like he's divine and everything, but what would he know about living in a fallen world? I remember sitting in this group in uh, America, leading this uh, redemption group in America, and we're sitting there and we're talking about suffering and trouble and how to live in a world that's filled with suffering and trouble. And, um, and this, this guy in the group, I mean, he's, he was such a champ. I just really liked him. But he said this thing, I was like, someone could have like, slapped me in the forehead at the end of it. Um, he sat there and he just goes, you know, he goes, you know what we really need? And he said, this thing is so hard about how to live in a fallen world where there's suffering and trouble around the place. He said, you know what we really need? We, we like need some kind of alien that can come in and live on this earth and show us how to live in a suffering, sinful world. <laughs> now, I massively sympathise with this guy. It's like, yeah... Like, that's all we need, but it was kind of, it wasn't particularly apparent to him at that particular point in time that that was actually Jesus. That he actually came and he took on human flesh and he walked around and he showed us how to walk in a world that is filled with trouble and and evil. Um, You know, um, (laughs) Jesus always gets you. Every situation that you find yourself in, he always gets gets you. you 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 could never ever go to him in prayer about a situation that you're in and he'd just go huh never encountered that one before that, Peter I'm sorry but I'm just going to have to get Michael the Archangel on this one because that, that one's just out of my categories Hebrews 4 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See that? Jesus' humanity gives you confidence to go to God in a time of need to get all of the grace and all of the mercy and all of the help that you need. Because he gets you. It gets you. Here's the last one. Jesus is a humanity, and I, I would love to hang out here for a long time, but we just don't have time today. Jesus is humanity is the portal to God. Now, here's, here's the question. This is a big theological category here, right? And I'm just going to go over it in about 60 seconds. But how do we get access to the life of God? If God is the center and the life of everything, how do we get access to it? Does it happen remotely? Do we just do it via the NBN, right? Or maybe it's like some kind of version of Uber Eats where some some package gets delivered to the front door. You know, the life of God can't be beamed to you. 
the goodness of God can't be beamed to you. You need to be connected to God. But how does that happen? Well, the way that it happens, and this is a massive theological category, is the humanity of Christ is a portal through which you actually connect to the life of God. That's how it works. I mean, Jesus in his resurrected body had some kind of physicality to it, and it continues because that's how we connect in to the life of God. That's how we connect to God. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute, and this is where you get to do something. Uh, I want you to pray. I'm going to give you 60 seconds to pray, and you could pick one of those on the screen. Um, if, if you go, yeah, um, I've got a bunch of, I'm that kid with the dirty shirt and the dirty hands. And I, you know, I know that I've done some stuff in the last week. Uh, and it just hasn't been cleaned up. And I know that I, what I need to do, but I know I can't do it. And I need Jesus to do it for me. Well, you could just talk to him about that and ask him to forgive you and clean you up. Maybe for you, uh, uh, life is a bit of a test, a bit of a trial at the moment. Um, either because there's just some hard things coming your way or there's some testing, like temptation kind of testing that's actually going on. Uh, you should take this opportunity to, um, to pray because he gets you and get the grace and the mercy and the help that you need. The third option for you is the last one there. Um, you, you could talk to Jesus about his vibrancy and his life and just say, oh, can I have some more? Like the kid in Oliver Twist, can I, can I just... So I'll have some more of that. How, how do I get more of that? Can you come closer to me? Is everyone, everyone clear? If you're, if you're not a Christian, you're not familiar with this, people just close their eyes, they talk to Jesus, and um, that, that's all we're going to do. Um, you can do it out loud if you want, or you can just do it in your heart. 60 seconds. Why don't you just have a conversation with him? The Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. You know, the, uh, the Greek behind the idea of God dwelling among us is actually tabernacled, which is a tent. Jesus came, he took on human flesh and he tented among us. He tabernacled among us. What was the tabernacle? Um, it was the tent that was pitched in the middle of the Israelites' camp where the presence of God was. This is Exodus 25 verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, which was the tabernacle, that I might dwell in their midst. And what we've actually got is we've got the living God dwelling right in the middle of his people. Now, if, if you know God, you go, that, that's really impressive, especially considering the, the trouble that we often get ourselves into. But then at the same time, you go, ah, no, 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 no. I've seen this before. That's, 
It's not that surprising that Jesus comes and tabernacles amongst us because if you actually work your way through Scripture, you find out the whole way through Scripture that that's what God does. God is a God who is with. So I'm just going to take you on a quick Cook's tour, really quick. We could just do this over and we could spend sermons and sermons on this, but you just need to know that God is a God who is with. Here's the first um, kind of snapshot of it. This is uh, the fall of humanity, but it's this sublime reality that Adam and Eve hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You know what this means? This is like the heat of the day is gone. The cool breezes are blowing. And what would God be doing? Going for a walk in the garden where Adam and Eve were. Is that not sublime to you? The thought that he would just take a walk? You know, we move on and, you know, biblical history moves on. We get to the point where the uh, Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and God goes and calls Moses. And at the call of Moses, we see this. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. Of course. (laughs) Of course he would be. He would be with him. Why? Because he is God with. The people of Israel come out of Egypt and they end up at Sinai. And at Sinai, God gives instructions to Moses about the tabernacle. And, and it's a tragedy. I mean, if you know the story, the people go after the golden calf. And when do they go after the golden calf? They go after a God to go before them, which is what they say, right in the middle of God's instructions about building the tabernacle, which is about God being with his people. So it's like they snatch after something that God was organizing anyway. So God gives these instructions about the tabernacle. And then what does he do? The, cl- uh, the cloud, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He moved, for those who know, from the top of Mount Sinai, didn't he? Right all the way down. Where? Right in the middle of his people. It's what he does. That's his thing. You know, it was a tent so that they could take God with them in all of their wanderings through the wilderness. And then we get to the temple. The temple's like this fixed building. People are in the the promised land, and we see this in 1 Kings 8, verse 10 to 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What did God do? He came and he was with his people in the middle of his people. You see this over and over. You can go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah's call. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. Sounds like Moses, right? For I am only a youth. What does God say? Well, he says the same thing that he said to Moses. He says it to Jeremiah all those years later. Do not say I'm only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. Why? Because I'm with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, many of you know it gets a bit dodgy um, 
in the back end of kind of the Old Testament era. And this was prophesied by Moses back in Deuteronomy 31, verse 16 to 17. I just want to read this for you. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, then the people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. Listen to this. And I will forsake them. I mean, God said to Moses at one point in time, because of the rebellious people, he says, you can go up, I'll give you everything that you want, but you just don't have me. And Moses just goes, can't do it. Just literally, it's, I'm going to fall apart if you don't come. And here's God, sorry, I said it was Moses before, but here's God saying, this is what's going to happen. The people are going to turn against me, and you know what's going to happen. There's going to be a day where I'm going to leave them. And that is meant to be the worst news ever. That God would leave his people. See something similar in um, Hosea 9 verse 12. Even if they bring up children, I'll bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. And you know, uh, we don't have time, but if you get into the book of Ezekiel, there's a whole bunch of sections in the book of Ezekiel that tell you that God's leaving the temple. You know, and he does. And, and it's, you're meant to look at that and just go, that's a tragedy. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like that with having a sense of God's presence with you? Are, are you okay with just kind of moving on without it? Are, are you okay with not being connected with him? You know, the, there's a remnant of people that come back and they kind of start rebuilding the temple, but... God never really comes back in the way that he was um, with them previously. And it's unusual. You're meant to look at that and just go, well, that's, that's weird. Isn't he a God with? And I would say wholeheartedly to you, of course he is. <laughs> of course he is. Forsaking is not his thing. Forsaking is not his thing. And so we get to... Um, <laughs> we get to Jesus and what do we see? Well, we see things returning to normal, don't we? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, everyone read it? Yeah, come on. Eh? Isn't that? I, I mean, I, I've been reading an, an amazing theological book called, um, it's a biblical theological book, it's a bit, heavy at times, but it's been one of the most impacting books I've ever read called God's Relational Presence. And the section that I got to uh, about God leaving the temple and the minor prophets and like, I'm just, oh, I, I, I need to get to Jesus. Like it was genuinely depressing. It's like, how, how are they supposed to go on without him? But in the person of Christ, it's like this, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's like this dry, crusty creek bed as this seeping water that's unstoppable that comes in and starts to nourish, and it comes in the person of Jesus. And if you did a study, if you did a study of particular phrasing that shows up in the covenant relationships that God has with his people, and a covenant's just a formal relationship, so uh, marriage is a covenant, uh, for example. If you did a study, there would be 
this summary would show up in most of the covenants. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now this is about the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? But this phrase in some form or another shows up with every single relationship that God makes and forms, the formal relationships, every covenant. Now, man, I'm going to have to hurry up. How much of your day do you do on your own? At least you think you're on your own. When you face whatever things come your way, do you face them with the knowledge and the deep, deep-seated conviction that God is a God who is with and he's with you? Now, we'll come back to this briefly in a minute, but... Folks, this is where it ends up. So we started with God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here's where we end up. This is the, the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, 3 to 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, surprise, surprise. He's going, ah, Peter, can you give us something new? The dwelling place of God is with men and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. Do you see this refrain? It's the same refrain. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. If you're going through something hard, you're meant to, this is like fuel in your tank, right? Someone just snuck up and stuck the, the petrol nozzle in your tank and just filled it up, right? This is where we're going. This is where we're ending up with being right, tight, in the presence of God. What are you going through at the moment? Let this energize you. You know, God's making of his dwelling amongst us, there is no <laughs> more, there is no brighter shining example than Christ, the word becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us amen it it bears the hallmarks of all the other times but all of the other times it turns out point to this time the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we don't get smoked for being too close (laughs) people don't get burnt by god's presence they get restored And so I want to say to you that Jesus came in the flesh. He dwelt in our midst and the Holy, he has given the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and God really does walk in our midst. Do you believe that? you believe that today? I'm not going to go into the details, but there's this thing and there's some rules in the Old Testament about what you should do with certain things. And, and the reason why is because the Lord your God walks amongst your camp. If you love Jesus, he's given you his spirit and he walks in our midst today. Right now. So if he's walking in our midst, here's the obvious question. And again, I'd love to spend a bunch of time on this, but we won't. Just ask you this question. Are you walking with him? Are you? 
Uh, Book of Amos says, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Like you you can't walk next to someone else unless there's some kind of agreement that you're actually going to do whatever you're doing together. You know, to, to walk with God. I mean, you go back to almost the beginning of the scriptures, you see this phrasing about Noah, that Noah walked with God. Uh, is there an agreement between you and God? Do, do you walk together? Do you share with one another? Do you do life together? Is he involved in stuff that's going on in your life? Or do you kind of, I don't know, <laughs> prayer's a bat phone, right? And just It's a bat phone that gets you Batman when you need him. It's like, I'll let you know if I need a hand today, but I think, I'm, I think I'll be okay. Well, that's not what God's wanting to do, and it's not the best thing for you. I'm going to scoot. So we've got God low, God with, and God glorious. If you've still got John 1 verse 14 there, see the second half of that verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We get to see Jesus without being consumed. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. That's how it works. If you go uh, into the scriptures and you go, well, what is the glory of God? What, what is that? Well, you know, God's glory is his presence. That's what it is. Um, one of the words uh, Jews would use to speak of the glory of God was his Shekinah glory. And Shekinah basically means it's this idea of dwelling. God's presence is with and we can see it. We can lay hold of it. Can you see what John's up to here? Not only is he actually talking about the tabernacle, but he's going, have a look at this. (laughs) We saw his glory. We got to see him. Like in the Old Testament, it was a cloud or fire or a pillar of smoke. And now it's Jesus. That's who it is. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the dwelling of God with his people. The rest were just mere shadows. You see his glory, you see him. And we could say lots about this, couldn't we? There have been sermons after sermons preached about the glory of God. But I just want to finish briefly, we're going to come back to this next week, with where John takes us. Where does he he take us? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace is God's generosity and kindness. Truth in this context isn't like it's some separate entity. It's actually faithfulness. It's reliability. It's embodied in the person of Jesus. And if you go back into the Old Testament, you will see over and over and over again that grace and truth go together. Classic example is in uh, when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 8, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, listen to this, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You hear that? Grace and truth. Grace and faithfulness. That's who God is. And that's what we see. What we see in Jesus is these This is the way Jonathan Edwards puts it, if you can handle a bit of the old English. He goes, a conjunction of diverse excellencies, (laughs) which is really, if I put it in layperson speak, it's like there are things that don't go together anywhere else. They come together in the person of Jesus. And he is, he's beautiful. He is, he is glorious. Let me read you this quote from Jonathan Edwards quickly. 
There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. The lion and the lamb, though very diverse kinds of creatures, yet have each their peculiar excellencies. The lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. Besides the excellent nature of the creature is good for food and yielding that which is fit for our clothing and being suitable to be offered in sacrifice to God. But we see that Christ is in the text compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. This is the glory of God, isn't it? It's not the only bit of it, but we get grace and truth. We get humanity and divinity. We get amazing highness and the lowest humility. We get someone who is powerful yet gracious. Someone who is big yet precise. This is the beauty that you're looking for. It just is. It's the beauty that you're looking for. I wonder that worship team can come up. You know, most of your life is consumed with looking for beauty. It's what it is. You want, you want the good life. You want the good stuff. You want, you want love. You want security. Uh, you, you are made to behold amazing things. I remember um, Sue and Cole and I uh, went to a big Presbyterian church in Dallas, um, Texas, a number of years ago, and uh, they did a call to worship. Now, normally in a Presbyterian church, a call to worship is someone reads a scripture and calls people to worship God and focus on him. Um, but in this case, this, I don't know, 80-year-old, gnarly-knuckled man gets up and plays a grand piano, and no one sings. And do you know, it was just the most beautiful musical piece. And we all just sat there and just went, I'm ready to worship. Why? Because we got to listen to something that was beautiful. Do you ever go and look at the night sky? Do you ever look at a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise? Try not to do that one. You know, even, if you can pardon me saying, it's probably a random one, but even the porn user is after beauty and is after pleasure. And the reality is that God is the one who sits behind all created things. So wherever you see yourself going for beauty and stopping there, I'd say don't be half-hearted about it. That's what Lewis says. Don't be half-hearted. Go through it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Don't stop with the creation. Creation tells you something about the beautiful one, the great one, the glorious one behind it. And we become addicted, slaves, idolaters when we stop with creation. Do you do that? Can you see in your lifetimes where you stop created beauty we're um, we're going to have communion today and um, you know um, it's such a in, in so many ways the 
the story of Jesus dying on the cross is such a macabre scene. There's a man there that has been whipped with a cat of nine tails, uh, being nailed to a wooden cross. And if we conventionally thought about what was beautiful and what was attractive, it wouldn't make my list. Uh, Many of us have seen the Passion of the Christ movie and um, uh, probably need to be in the right frame of mind for that one. I remember watching it at the cinemas and the, the silence, extended silence at the end of it. But do you know, um, it is beautiful because it's actually, that, that is the place where grace and truth meet, where God's faithfulness and his love come together, where God's justice is handed out and dealt out to sin. And that's what communion's about. Communion's about partaking of the one who sacrificed himself for us. He died on the cross. It's about saying, dwell with me. Dwell with me.